This is episode number 65 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. It's Jesse Mundell. And Anita Lambert. And we are so excited to have Jillian Murphy on the podcast with us today. Jillian, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yes, this is going to be such a good conversation. I have a real personal investment in this conversation, and I know Anita does as well. We are going to be talking about raising competent eaters. And first of all, I just love the wording and the language of that, and Mm, I can't wait to talk more about that. Yes. So we're going to talk about food, feeding, mindset around food, and bodies of our littles, of our kids. So let me give Mm. you some info on Jillian, and then we'll talk more specifically about what you do. So Jillian Murphy works with diverse, smart, health-conscious women who are done with dieting, looking to get out of their heads and reconnect with their body. Jillian uses cutting-edge eating psychology, in-the-know insight and guidance around diet culture, health, and weight to teach women why they stay stuck in negative patterns around food and constant body dissatisfaction. Jillian works with women, children, and health professionals with the end goal always being joyful women and families who feel peaceful around food, comfortable in their own skin, and able to make flexible, healthy choices for themselves without angst. Dr. Jillian Murphy is a registered, licensed doctor of naturopathic medicine, having completed the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine's four-year postgraduate program in 2006. Jillian's background includes 10 years of general naturopathic practice, over 15 years of working with children in various fields, including intuitive eating and body image. For the past eight years, Jillian has been studying the psychology of eating, the relationship between weight and health, intuitive eating, and the most in-the-know strategies for exiting the diet cycle. Jillian works from a health-at-every-size haze perspective, which we are so thankful for, and that is a huge Mm. reason why we wanted to speak with you today. So thank you again, and can you give us more information about how you work, who you work with, why people are coming to you? Yeah, so I work, like, I work predominantly with, basically only with women and families. I do work with men, so I feel sometimes bad when I say that, but it really is such a small percentage of men that when I talk, it sounds really gendered. It's mostly women and then children who are struggling with food in their bodies in some way. So when it comes to women, it's generally worries about weight, um, worries that their body isn't the right size or shape, and then the subsequent food and movement issues that come out of that, whether it's like being incredibly preoccupied with food 
or reactive with food or unconscious or confused when it comes to food. And the patterns with movement tend to be very similar. So whatever's happening with them with food tends to also be mirrored in their relationship with exercise. And then with children, um, parents tend to bring me their kids when they believe that their child is faltering in growth or too big, like too fat is generally what I will, will deal with. And they're stressed and concerned about it. And then there can also be really finicky or fussy eating patterns, or again, with children really preoccupied or seemingly unconscious with food. Like they don't seem to have a stop button and I don't know what the problem is. So, um, and the reason I got into, I mean, I've always worked with kids, but when I really honed in on this, like health at every size, body image, anti-diet perspective, um, I was mostly working with women. And then I realized that so many of the issues that women were having actually were born out of messaging and stories and lessons that they learned in childhood and so I'm like why am I at what point did I decide to ignore the kids um and I just as an aside have two daughters who are two incredibly different body types and so I have used the work that I use with children now to navigate that and to work super hard to make sure that I raise kids where weight isn't the ultimate determinant of worth and the ultimate marker of success. And how do I do that with two girls in really different bodies? Because I'm not the only force that's acting on them, right? It's They're getting this from every angle just in, in the world. As they're out in the world, they're 10 and 8 right now. So that was the impetus to like go a little bit back into working with children because I had sort of veered out of it for, for maybe a year, a really short period of time. Um, so I started falling back on the Ellen Satter work that I used uh, when my children were very young. And I started to realize as I dove back into it, because, you know, my kids have grown. And so you kind of get out of reading books about kids all the time. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, my work here is done. <laughs> and it's not. But you stop reading the books as diligently or obsessively when they're not babies anymore. But as I dove back into those books, I was like, oh, my God, her model so mirrors what I'm doing already with women. And so I actually took an extra leap and I'm working with her, like her in a small group of women who are studying to be affiliates and, and actually faculty members that, that teach her method. So that's what I'm, I'm in the midst of doing that right now, which is pretty exciting because I think that there's maybe no one in Canada who does this. So pretty incredible. Oh my gosh. Yes. That is incredible. I have so many questions for you just from what you said there. I feel like this could be a long one. <laughs> so, okay. First of all, I am so interested. So these parents bring their kids to work with you. I feel like my parents could have used you when I was a young kid because I was going through lots of different uh, disordered eating um, and body image things. We can talk more about that in a minute. Um, how old do these kids tend to be? Well, okay. So I work with kids that are all ages, like literally from birth, um, all the way through until, I mean, I'm working with young women who are in their early twenties, like in that kind of weird age, 17 to 22, where they're not really teenagers anymore, but they're not exactly women, um, and dealing with the same issues that like fully developed women are dealing with. So I work with all of them. And I will just say that parents don't tend to bring the kids with. I actually recommend, I tend to work with 
the parents more than the children because often like what what we're going to talk about today is what Ellen Satter's model for competent eating is and one of the things that's really interesting especially when children are young is that the parent is really responsible for a lot of the feeding relationship and the child is sort of free within the structure that the parent creates to experiment and develop autonomy and learn how to eat but one of the things within this model is that children are taking on too much responsibility and so they like know too much they are worried about health. They're worried about what foods are good and what foods are bad. And it actually starts to interfere with them being um, naturally be curious and interested in food and how it feels in their bodies. And so often, pretty much all the time when I'm working with parents, I sort of keep the kids out of it really early on. And, and we're working on the parent end of things. And then as they get a little bit older, there's this potential to bring them in, especially when they're in their teens. But teens are, you know, a whole other ball game as well. <laughs> yes, we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, can you share a bit um, about the training that you are doing under Ellen Satter in terms of like what what that looks like? It's, it's online training, and so we meet every two weeks over the course of six months for this portion of the training. And she has faculty members that present cases. It's a lot of case studies, um, working through assessment, understanding growth charts, because that's actually where a lot of issues start, is that doctors don't necessarily fully understand growth in children, and so, like family doctors. And so they may identify a problem where there is not one, and so it puts fear in the parent. And then the tools for managing that are force feeding and or restricting. So not, not great advice even when it comes to if there is a problem. Um, learning about growth curves, a really interesting study that I read just um, a week ago about, you know, cause we do a lot of studies as well. We're reading a lot of studies and learning how to understand the research and what's good and what's not, which is always great to revisit. Doesn't matter how much education you've done research tends to be overwhelming for most of us that are in the healthcare profession. And so being forced to sit down and go go through some of these studies. So a great one about BMI and how useless it is for kids from 11 to around 17. And so those are such key years. Growth is changing and parents, children get information about growth being off and eating issues begin to arise. So it's so interesting to read that. And then also just reading another study recently about growth in children and and what percentage of year children are actually growing. And it's so small. And so when we look at a growth chart, if we're not clear on what we're looking at and what we're reading, it's really easy to misinterpret the information and to accidentally put parents encouraging them to interfere in the feeding relationship when they needn't ever do it. So the, the, just getting back to the training we meet every other week it's an hour and a half sometimes a little bit longer there's a lesson there's some homework um case studies and again we're really really digging into everything from um growing and where the problems begin to arise to full assessment and then how to um guide parents into better feeding practices with their children that is so interesting i I'm wondering when the parents who are coming to you about their children's stuff that might be coming up, are you working with the parents on their own stuff? 
Oh, yes. So one of the things that we do with parents is parents actually fill out one of the competent eating questionnaires. And that's really interesting because it's broken down into different categories that has to do with like their own levels of food acceptance or curiosity and how, um, how they take care of their own appetites. And if they listen to hunger and fullness cues, like we go through a pretty, it's a pretty short but thorough questionnaire on the parent's relationship with food and it's broken down into different categories we do any parent that's sort of in a primary role of feeding the children because it does give us some insight into that relationship with food and so much of the work is actually helping and re-educating parents on what normal competent eating is because again we live in this diet culture that feeds us all kinds of crazy messaging really not founded in in research or in good practice about how we should be eating and how we should be feeding our kids. And so, yeah, we totally work with them. We also sometimes do videos of the family eating, which is amazing because we get to see the family dynamic at play and parents just themselves when they see the playback of like how they feed the kids at the dinner table and what the conversation around food looks like. It's amazing how much the parents will just pick up on their own. Like, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. You know, so um, yeah, we do questionnaires, video, and lots of parental education. That's so interesting. Oh my gosh, watching that back must be fascinating for people. It's really interesting. It's really cool. I want to get more into that side of things, like dealing with our own stuff when we're teaching our kids how to be competent eaters. But first, what does it even mean to help our kids become competent eaters? What does competent eating look like? Okay, so I love this question. First thing I'll say, because often what we read and what we hear is that we want our children to be healthy eaters. And so um, competent eating is a little bit different because what the goal is, is to raise children who are relaxed about eating, who enjoy food and are comfortable with their enjoyment of food, are relevant relatively accepting and comfortable of the body that they're in and have a certain amount of intelligence around like being curious with food and accepting of new foods, but also able to manage themselves around foods that they're not quite interested in or ready for. And the thing with healthy eating or pushing through healthy eaters is that it tends to encourage or promote that parents engage in more bright or pushing or light encouraging <laughs> of children to eat certain foods. And with the, the competent eating model, less concerned about what children are eating. And we are much more concerned with how they're being fed and how they're learning to eat. Because we know from the research, because again, this is a model, which I think is very interesting and important to point out. It's not just like, these are healthy foods and here's an idea I have about how to get these healthy foods into a kid. This is a research validated model that not only shows that long-term, these children do end up eating like their parents. So if you are someone who enjoys lots of, you know, vegetables and nutrient dense foods, your children will grow to eat like you and what we're doing is reducing collateral damage that can happen when we interfere and when we bribe and push and force and reward and fear children into eating healthy yes. things. And so it's kind of like the 
we're taking a longer view, right? So we're not expecting that children have a master's or a PhD in nutrition by the time they're four and being willing to accept all the things. And we're understanding that as with all things in life, there are certain aspects of food that's a little scary and new and weird and that different children will mature and evolve to eat a wide variety of foods in a healthful way over time. And sometimes that can take until like 19 or 20. <laughs> yeah, but no. isn't that so relieving to hear? Yeah, I, I think so. I think like what a relief to not feel like you have to be so in control and force feed children all the time. Yeah, I find this so interesting and I love hearing this. And it would be great to hear even because I know you mentioned your girls, um, their age. Can you go back a bit and just how you started um, with, you know, helping them become competent eaters, even like as toddlers, I would love to hear. Right. Well, I'll tell you about what the model looks like. And I'll just say that my history and one of the reasons that I got into the work that I, that I am in is because my long history is that I suffered from orthorexia when I was in my early 20s, which is an obsession with healthy eating that bleeds very much with anorexia because it becomes so restrictive eventually that there's like nothing left to eat because everything is, is, you're afraid of everything and everything's not healthy enough and, and it becomes very fearful and restrictive. And so I had worked my way out of that and I was pretty clear that I never wanted to put that on my kids. So even though I'm a naturopath, even though we are a family that as a whole eats lots of nutrient dense foods and that's the choice we make and we have the finances and the resources to put those foods on the table regularly, it was never an obsession of mine because I couldn't. It couldn't be an obsession of mine. I actually like strayed from that. So Ellen Satter's model was very attractive to me because it took the pressure off me feeling like I needed to buy into these more intense or rigid ideologies around feeding children and what to get into them. So it was attractive. Um, and basically the foundation of this model of eating relies on what's called the division of responsibility in feeding. And the division of responsibility is essentially like parents are responsible for certain things in the feeding relationship and children are responsible for the rest. And so really early on when babies are sort of before they're eating solids in those newborn first six, seven month stages, the division is really simple. Parents are responsible for the what like, are you going to breastfeed or are you going to bottle feed? Or are you going to do two? And what kind of formula are you going to use? Like parents are responsible for that. And the baby's responsible for everything else. The when, the where, the how much, the if, and you know, from even day one, that child is, you know, it's going to be very difficult to force them to eat when they don't want to, and to try to restrict them when they want to eat, right? Like very early on, babies are clear when they're hungry and when they're not, you know? And so really that, those early phases are mostly about um, teaching babies to manage their emotions by just cuddling them and holding them and using our own homeostatic resources to teach them homeostasis. And then we move into more attachment phases. And as they begin to eat, the division of responsibility shifts. And for the majority of the years following that, if not all of the, the years up until the teens, the division of responsibility is parents are responsible for the what, 
the when, and the where of feeding. So they're responsible for what foods they choose to bring into the house, what, choose, what foods they choose to cook and how they choose to prepare them. Um, they're responsible for where they feed the children and how often they feed the children. And kids are responsible for, and this is big, children are responsible for what they choose, to, like the if, sorry, I don't want to say what again, if they're going to eat and how much they're going to eat of the food that's served to them. And again, anyone who's tried to force a kid <laughs> to stop or to eat something that we really want them to eat knows that it's a real uphill battle to sort of battle them on what their responsibilities are. And the understanding is that when we stay in our lanes and parents stay responsible for nutritional decisions and bringing food into the house and cooking it and preparing it and, and providing reliable meals and children are allowed to stay in their lane deciding if they're gonna eat and how much they're gonna eat at those times, feeding tends to go very well and the results are good. And the results are not just good with food, they're good with body acceptance because they're allowed to grow in a way that is appropriate and natural for them. Results are good in terms of blood sugar and blood lipids and um, blood pressure, like all of the markers of health are also incredibly good, regardless of where those bodies fall on the BMI scale, which is really important. Because again, the BMI scale is not always so reliable or great. So it's about staying in our lanes and it's about understanding that when there are issues with feeding, when we pull it apart and we assess what's happening, it's typically too little interference by the parents or too much interference by the parents. Or put another way, people get out of their lanes. And so they're either putting too much responsibility on the children for figuring out what to eat and when to eat, or they're hyper micromanaging the children in terms of now I'm also going to take control of, of, of if you eat and how much. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely does. We also follow the division of responsibility in our house and it has been really successful and I like how you define successful and I was going to ask you that so thank you for thank you for following up because I think we tend to think maybe that successful eating with kids would have them be eating everything that we did put in front of them or them really enjoying all the foods that we prepared and they sat at the table the entire meal and stayed with us while we finished our meal and successful eating might just not look like that especially for you know we have my oldest is three and a half and successful eating often does not look like that and we've had to define it in different ways that are appropriate for a three and a half year old. Right. Because otherwise, as with when we try to take more control of our children in so many different areas, we just end up stressing and anxious and fretting and they're not really changing that much, you know? And again, it's that sort of like cost benefit. You might get a little more broccoli into them today, but again, it, it, it doesn't tend to, to, in the research, it doesn't tend to show that they necessarily eat more broccoli long-term and you are much more likely with the forcing to end up in a power struggle over broccoli, as opposed to them just deciding that they're not going to eat broccoli today, but next week they're, they're equally open to trying it as they were the week before. Right. And so to me, it's always about preserving that natural curiosity and desire and intention and knowing that 
their bodies do know what they need and we can trust that. We don't need to be hypervigilant or micromanage every step of the way. And if we do need to be hypervigilant or micromanaging of anything, it's those things that are in our lane. So when there are issues, it's always because the structure in some way has fallen apart on the parents' end of things, right? So I, so I like the model because it also gives us somewhere to focus. Because when you're worried, you need to focus somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I am so interested. Are your kids similar eaters? Do they eat totally differently? What's up with them right now at these ages and stages? That's such a great question. Okay, they are different in the sense of, and it's really interesting because again, I mentioned already, they have very different body types and we talk really openly about that because like, why wouldn't we? They can tell differences in different body sizes and shapes and they're going to get messaging about it outside of the house. So when they bring it up, we talk really openly about it, but it's so interesting because the, the child that is the more tiny kind of wispy child is the one who has always been our biggest eater and our our child who's a more round child is the one who's been a little bit more finicky, definitely has, um, she likes food, like she's a little bit more of a foodie and is more interested in food. And, you know, I remember at three one time her eating some salad or something that we gave her and sort of saying like, hmm, does this have mayonnaise in the dressing? You know, at three, <laughs> whereas the other kid, you know, would just like, she just shovels food in, like it's almost insane watching her eat because it's just like you know three hamburgers and it, did you chew like what happened there so they do eat differently and they do have different tendencies but we follow this division of responsibility and we serve food family style meaning we prep whatever we're gonna have for dinner and we put it on the table and we serve food that we want to eat and we consider our children meaning we're always thinking about their individual likes and dislikes. And we're aware to always put things on the table that we know that they will take in happily. And, but we don't short order cook for them. So we're not making separate meals for them every night. It's like, this is what we're eating. And if it's really grown up and mature, then we make sure that there's some options on the table that they can pick easily and, and without a lot of fear. And then we just let them do their thing. And it's been really interesting to see this model be successful in that we could put sweet potato fries or roasted sweet potatoes on the table for like a year and neither one of them would touch them. And then one night, just like six months ago, I cooked up roasted sweet potatoes. And if I'm honest, I was just like not in the mood for a fight that night. You know, it's like we all follow the model except for the times when we don't. And so I just didn't even put sweet potatoes on the table. I like serve them up for my husband and I, and I just put things on the table I knew they would eat that night for whatever reason. And they were like, hey, wait a minute, what about us? Don't we get to have the sweet potatoes? I'm like, sure. And you know, my husband and I are like eyeing each other and in our brains we're cheering, but like no, you know, no reaction. Sure, of course, if you feel like roasted sweet potatoes. And they like gobbled the plate up, the tray up, and you know, they've eaten them ever since. And and we see that they move in and out of foods. And those were foods that they consumed really happily and readily when they were like three and four, but somewhere around five or six, they got pickier about certain things and they're circling back to them. And we haven't had to force and we haven't had to pressure and we haven't had to bribe. And they generally eat very well. We are also though. Um, 
very clear on the fact that we bring play foods into our house as well. So we serve work food because that's what we genuinely like and what makes our body feel good. But we are aware that kids need to become as competent with play foods as they do with work foods. And so we regularly bring those foods in for a snack where it might be like just a big bowl of chips on the table when they come home from school with some vegetables or fruit cut up beside it or a plate full of cookies where it's really like you manage yourself with this. Like, I'm not going to give you one cookie or two cookies. I'm going to put a plate out and you're going to figure this out for yourself. Um, or dessert a few nights of the week, however many times feels good to us. And it's, it's the one time where Ellen sort of suggests breaking the division of responsibility with dessert with dinner, they get one serving. So, um, and I could get into that a little bit, but basically it just boils down to the fact that um, it's, it's a meal and we, we want them to be experimenting with the food that's on the table and play foods will always pull attention more than work foods. Right. And so we aren't bribing or we aren't um, using food to coerce the kids. So if dessert is up for grabs, it's up for grabs for everyone, regardless of what they eat of the dinner. And so to sort of like even the power struggle <laughs> between the work food and the play food with dinner, we only offer one serving. So even if they ate that first, they would still be hungry and want to eat the other foods on the table, you know? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Work and play food. Mm, have you heard that before? No. Okay, listen to this because you are going to love this. You're going to love it so much. So this is how we explain it to kids because again, like healthy versus unhealthy, it's really amazing. You know, I'm sure most people can think back to something that they were told in their really early years that the adult thought was super innocuous or important or interesting that the child harbored as a major fear. And so many of the kids that are incredibly finicky or resistant with food are actually holding a lot of fear because they've been given so much information about what's right to eat and what's wrong. And they just like don't know what to do with the information. And so they just end up in like, I call it like a stalled place with food. And it also plays into sort of the issues that, that children, girls, especially at this moment, although I know it's growing for boys, begin to have later in life when it comes to body and weight management and what's right and wrong. So we stay away from like healthy foods, unhealthy food, good food, bad food. I mean, don't get me wrong. I grew up in a diet culture too. Like I make mistakes sometimes, but generally what we use is work food, play food. And the way that I explain it to the kids is it's kind of like going to school, right? It's like you go to school five days a week, and you learn a lot of things that you need to learn, and it's important for your growth and development that you do it, um, whether it's a homeschool or a public school or a private school, whatever it is. But imagine if you only went to school all day, every day. Stuff would stop going in. It would stop being beneficial. Like there's real benefit to recess and lunchtime and evenings off and weekends. And it's like, that's what play food is. It's, it's not a guilty pleasure. And I don't even say this to them, but I'm just saying it to like round out the explanation. It's not a guilty pleasure. It's not an extra. It's not a whatever. It's an integral part of the eating experience. Pleasure and learning to manage ourselves around all the delicious foods and incorporate them in a moderate way is a really important part of knowing how to eat. 
And it's actually in the research been shown to be incredibly important for nutrient absorption and um, all of the nourishment that we get on all levels with food, not just our bodies, but our brains and our emotions. And so that's the way we explain it. Like play food is to work food, like what weekends are to school or what vacations are to work. It's like this really important thing that keeps things exciting and fun and fresh and interesting and joyful and pleasurable. And that's part of life, right? Nourishment is not just nutrients. It's it's all of the aspects of food. And children, again, you know, one of the biggest resistances to this is that children can't be trusted and they, they cannot manage themselves around sugary, fatty foods, but they can. It doesn't mean they'll manage themselves perfectly in every instance, but they learn when they mismanage themselves. And they will long-term be those kids that every woman I work with wish that they had been, which is the kid that can take the ice cream out of the freezer and have a spoonful of it and then put it back in and walk away. Like every woman I work with is like, I wish that I had been, they, they've always had that one friend that could just like be in the presence of food and take it or leave it. And again, with a division of responsibility, it's not a free for all. It's not like kids are just, you know, left in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory all day and night. They're just given opportunities as a part of developing them into, into competent eaters to eat these foods without a lot of big stories around it. Like, okay, you're getting this now, but like, this isn't good for you. And it's got this in it and it could kill you. And like, you know, there's just not a lot of story. It's just a food. And they get, they learn from the way that you feed them that it's not a food that you eat every day. If you're not serving it for breakfast, they understand it's not a breakfast food. You know, we don't have to like, like drill it into them. That's all about us and our anxieties about food and our fears of what they're going to eat or not eat, you know? So as parents, we're still responsible for the what and the when and the where. And if you don't want to serve donuts for breakfast, you don't. But I think that it's important to give our children opportunities to eat donuts and manage them. Yeah. I feel like there's like so many light bulb moments. I'm seeing Jess's face too. Um, it's one of those things where, cause I feel like I've been trying to figure out, you know, rather than saying like treat food or this is like special, like I love that idea of work food and play food. Cause it takes that off the table. All the morality is gone, right? Yeah. It's like, we can see the importance of both, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I love that there's importance of both. As you said, yeah. it's not an extra. This is an integral part of the relationship for food. And one more time, nourishment is not just about nutrients, I believe is what you said. Yeah. This idea in our culture that like food should never be emotional is just wrong. I mean, food is emotion. It's the first way that we love our children is feeding them. And that's how we develop trust. And, and, and it's a beautiful thing. It's not a thing to fear. It's only thing. It's only a thing to fear in a fat phobic culture, that emotional relationship with food in a culture that's terrified of weight gain. But again, the catch 22 of the whole thing is when people have this relaxed, easeful, pleasurable relationship with food, it's not pleasurable to eat well beyond full over and over and over again. Occasionally, sure, Thanksgiving, whatever, it's a Saturday night, but it's not pleasurable to do that over and over and over again. Um, I posted something from Ellen Satter just last night that sort of said, you know, when, 
when people are fully allowed to eat and to eat all foods and to eat to the point of not just full, but satisfied, there's no excitement in going crazy with like it's food. You can eat the work food and the play food in exactly the same way. There's no power struggle. There's no pull. And that's, that's truly the goal for me in, in all of this. I feel like I heard a lot kind of growing up as like a babysitter and that um, kids being told, like, if you, you know, don't eat your dinner, then you can't have dessert. But what you're saying is like, you could have, like, what if, what if your child decides they don't want to eat any of the dinner, like any of the work food? How does that then play into like the play food side of things? So I just always remind parents without saying anything to kids, you are still in charge of whether dessert is offered or not. So for example, if I notice that our kids are going through a phase where they're eating very little dinner, but they're definitely like eating dessert, of course, because why wouldn't they if it's offered? And again, we don't withhold. If it's offered, it's offered. It's an option. So if I happen to notice that they're really just not eating the food on the table, then what I'll do is without talking too much about it, I just don't serve dessert for a little while. But the other thing that I think is also important is that, again, it's not a free-for-all. There's a structure here. So when dinner's over, dinner's over. If you happen to have a snack time built in at like 7 p.m. before bed, which we do, then they can eat again at 7. But if kids haven't eaten their dinner and they're only allowed one serving of dessert, they're still hungry or they're not. And if they're not, then I'm not that worried about it. Because probably, as children do, they've gotten all the nourishment that they need at breakfast or lunch. We've seen kids do that, right? Like they like binge eat at breakfast or lunch, and then they're kind of like, eh, I don't really want dinner. So if they're really not hungry, then I don't worry about it too much. I still might make the decision to not serve dessert for a few nights or whatever. Um, but if they are coming hungry 10 minutes after dinner's done, then that's a great moment to talk about food right? We don't talk about food very much at the table. We talk about all of the other things because the mealtime isn't just about feeding kids. It's about family time and bonding and attachment. And so we talk more about other things like how was your day and what's going on with you. But I will talk about food occasionally away from the table. So that's a really important time to be like, so what did you eat for dinner again? Can you remind me? Oh yeah, you had like two cookies <laughs> and three bites of rice. That might be why you're hungry. You know, and I'll just leave it at that. And then they're not allowed to eat though until snack time. So part of the, the division of responsibility is having fairly set snack and meal times. So kids just can't like decide to not eat dinner and then like, oh yeah, have whatever you want 10 minutes later, like scour the cupboards. That's not enough structure, right? And especially, um, I'm, you know, we can always be flexible with that, obviously, as with any kind of like parenting advice. We have to do what works for our family, but especially if there's a feeding issue, we fall back really hard on that structure because it's within that structure that parents will have the comfort to let their kids work through these funny moments with food. Cool. I love that. I love that about the structure. I think that that's important for people to hear because yeah, like you said, it's just, um, yeah, it's not that the kitchen needs to be like a constant revolving door 24 hours a day. You pick whatever you want to have, like super stressful, super stressful on the parent. Like the relationship needs to work on all sides. And, and because also teaching our kids to eat isn't just about getting food to, into them. It's also about them. It's a socialization. It's a, it's a teaching and socialization as well, right? Like 
being considerate and being polite and, and going with the flow and like accepting what's offered to you without having a temper tantrum. And I know that that doesn't happen right away, but that's part of the work, right? It's not just about food. It's also about how to be a human. <laughs> and so within this, within the structure, we, we start to give them some sense of like, you know, it, it isn't just a buffet all the time. And it's, it's particularly important uh, with children when the parent is incredibly worried that they're not eating enough or, or that they have no off button. That structure provides, you know, a, it's basically like the safety for parents to let kids do what they need to do at mealtimes, but also know like, okay, they're going to get to eat again in a couple of hours if I, you know, it's, it's just super important to the process. I, with adults, I sometimes use more of the intuitive eating model because with a lot of women they've had so much structure and so much regime and like rigidity enforced upon them and they're eating for so long that they really need things to be loosey-goosey and and they're in a place and a space where they can actually just be loosey-goosey and get in touch with their body and figure it out but children and obviously adults that are in really disordered places with eating can't always just rely on intuition because they've been so disconnected. And so I find the competency eating model beautiful with adults that are in really disordered patterns with food and obviously with children who are developing, it meets them at their developmental level. Can we talk a bit more about projecting our own shit about bodies and food onto our kids? Yeah, sure. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> Oh my gosh. It's hard. It's so, so hard. And, and I, I, one of the things that we do is we really break down um, like the positives for the parents and where the parents are struggling and the positives for the kids and where the kids are struggling. And the bottom line is that when people are projecting things onto their kids, it's because they're trying to protect them from something that gen generally happened to them or happened to someone that they love. So when they're hounding their child about eating too much, it's because they're terrified they're going to be made fun of or teased um, or they, they want what's best and they think they're doing what's best. But again, as with so many fears with parents, we have to manage the fears ourselves and figure out how to deal with those fears and those anxieties and understand that our children are just different human beings than we are. And they deserve that opportunity to figure things out for themselves because life will just be different for them. And then for me, it's also about really showing parents how all those things that you're doing for all the right reasons are interfering and will likely make things worse. Like that preoccupation with food that your child has is because your child feels continually restricted on some level, right? And so the more you try to manage their weight for them, the worse this is going to get. And so I get that there's like a good positive intention here, but this is your child, this is her or his body, this is the way they're growing. And if we want them to end up at the weight that is closest to what's appropriate for their genetic blueprint, we need to stop interfering. And if you're not okay with where they end up with regards to where they're at for their genetic blueprint, then that's work that we have to do. Because that is a problem, right? It is a problem that we idealize and define certain bodies as healthy and appropriate when in reality that body ideal is much too small for the most for most human beings so for example in ellen satter's research 40 years of research you know our current bmi standards consider someone healthy if they're in a bmi body mass index range 
of like 18.4 to 29, 20, sorry, 18.4 to like 24.9. When Ellen studies competent eaters, like people who have a really good relationship with food, feel good about their bodies, move their bodies, eat relatively well, are peaceful with food, they, they fall into a BMI range of like 21 to 30 or 31, like well into what would medically be categorized as obesity. And these are people who have great, again, great health markers in the blood work and in their relationship with food and body. And so there is this relearning that has to happen with parents about what an appropriate or okay body type is and what's a problem like faltering weight or accelerating weight versus what's just your child's genetic blueprint. Yeah, such important points. You spoke to it in some sense, but can you just talk a little bit more about this fear that might be coming up for people about their kids becoming fat? Well, I think, I think that's what it plays into. I think that we are in a, in a thin as best diet culture that really does idealize a body type that wasn't, wasn't determined based on health. It was essentially fabricated to uphold Sounds very like a conspiracy theorist, but it really was. If you go back through the research, the body type that was developed in the late 1800s, early 1900s, because before that, uh, a very plump body type was ideal. It was a sign of, of robustness and fertility and class. Um, but when food scarcity was no longer a thing, which I mean, it still is to a certain degree for sure. But when we could store food and we had more access, a reliable access to food, a plump body type became much more common because people with the genetic makeup to put on weight started putting on weight when they had access to food. And so the body ideal or the body type that we idealize was essentially fabricated to uphold a classist system that wants to make people who have more money feel better than people who don't. And so it's like, I've got the money, I've got the time, I've got the whatever to uphold this thinner body ideal. It was fabricated to uphold racist systems where immigrants were moving into the United States in particular, and those immigrants would have potentially had much rounder, shorter statures. And so it was a way to, to differentiate yourself from people of a different genetic background. It was put into place to, by women occasionally because they were moving, especially in the 40s and 50s, out of the home, and they didn't want to look like moms anymore. They wanted to look like men. And so they started buying into a more masculine, quote unquote, body type to, to make themselves feel less matronly or, or maternal. Um, and then there were other factors at play as well. There were socially, there were sort of like artists, um, a great deal of whom in the early 1800s had tuberculosis. And so they had this very sickly, frail stature. And it was considered a sign of like, being an ultimate genius and a creative. And so that became part of the body ideal. And so you can see that very little of it, if any of it, had to actually do with health. And a lot of it had to do, and there was more, there's more to it than that. But it's really about power is what it's about. And so it's not just vanity, which I try to explain to people. Like when you're worried about your children it's because there is a privilege, a social privilege associated with the closer you are to that ideal body type. And the further you are from it, 
the more stigmatized you are in all spheres of our culture, whether it's the medical system or the workplace, it's well-documented. This isn't a fictional thing. It's a real thing. And so it's not just about vanity. It's about this real fear that our children might not belong or have access to love and connection and success. And so again, that's something that I need to pull apart with the parents, right? And just helping them understand that history and why we believe what we believe about bodies and how it's not serving us. It's huge though. It's so big. Huge. Yeah. And thank you for saying all of that and um, noting those aspects of privilege and um, the factors of race and class uh, that are in here too, because you can't, we can't have this conversation without talking about those things as well. It's all interconnected and we need to be considering it all. Um, but I just think it's so key to note that for the people who are listening in, for the parents, this is our work to do on our mm. own selves. Yeah, yeah. We're born with this innate ability to really like per almost perfectly manage ourselves, right? And it's, it's, we just, we get pulled away from it by all of the stories that, that our bodies aren't good enough at it. And our bodies are really good. Our bodies just may not end up where we think they should end up. And that's where the manipulation comes in. And I would also note that like, I think it's great that there's lots of information out there right now about optimal eating and optimal nutrition and all of that. But I do think it's important to note that, you know, one in eight families in Canada right now still struggle with making sure they have enough food for their family every week. And in the United States, there are food deserts. And so it's all well and good to take on these more optimal ideologies when it comes to nutrition. But I think it's important to remember that they're sort of like at the top of the pyramid, you know, and what's most important is that we meet the foundational needs when we are making recommendations about feeding children and that we don't try to um, shame or guilt or uphold parents to standards that they may not actually be able to, to fulfill. And, and under one of the things I love the most about this model is that it really will meet people wherever they are, whatever it is you are putting on the table every night for dinner, we can work with that. As long as you're sitting down and eating with your kids and you're modeling and you're making choices and you're taking some responsibility and you're letting them do their work, they will spiral up that pyramid into the higher levels. She's shown it over and over and over again when the foundation is met. And so it's a beautiful thing that I can take to um, the most privileged families that I work with, but I can also take it to the work that I do with really high risk young women who, who have so many barriers to eating well, and I can help them implement that in a way that's meaningful and positive and effective without any sort of collateral damage or shame. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you yeah. for that. I was actually wondering about um, the topic of sugar, because yeah. I feel that that's also something I hear a lot about. And it's also something I also feel like I'm conscious of with uh, my daughter is that so much food now, it, like sugar is pretty much the first ingredient. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not sure the exact question, but like, how do you approach that? Or how do you educate uh, parents about that with kids? Because I think that is a concern of like this um, addiction to sugar. 
Yeah. Um, even in foods that we don't think typically would have sugar, but do. So yeah, I was wondering how you approach that. Okay. There's so many things here. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing I'll say is that what parents are generally asking me is like, how do I get my kid to be more relaxed around sugar? And I'm like, okay, well then you need to be more relaxed around sugar. Like, let's just get a little relaxed because the bottom line is definitely there are more refined, um, Moorish forms of sugar on the market that are not necessarily ideal for our health, but in the research, children will manage themselves around that when there isn't this aspect of restriction at play. They will manage themselves. And so what I tend to just remind parents is, again, you're in charge of the what. So if you're in that space where you are aware of sugar in foods, you can go to the grocery store and you can model not having as much sugar in the house and not serving as sweet of foods because you, you have that choice, you have that option. But at the same time, if we want our children to be relaxed around sugar, we just need to give them opportunities in a safe, non-judgmental space to manage themselves around sugar. Because the more taboo it feels, the more restricted it feels, that's when we start to see children who are incredibly preoccupied with sugar. It's in the presence of that. And, and food or sorry, sugar does definitely in the research, like light up pleasure centers in our brain, but lots of things light up pleasure centers in our brain and sugar in its most basic form is what our body survives on. Right. And, and biochemically, you know, definitely a sweet potato <laughs> has some nutrients and some fiber that like straight up white sugar doesn't have, but at the core of it, they're both glucose. And both of those things could be used to keep us alive if we needed them to. Right. And so for me, it's about just disseminating some of the like hysteria around sugar, remembering that I'm still in charge of how much sugar comes into my house and that any opportunity that my children have to eat sugar, even if it sometimes feels like a bit much like around holidays or, or Halloween, those are just learning opportunities for my kids. And I treat them as such. And to date, in accordance with the research, my children have a great relationship with sugar. Do they love it? Yeah. But they're also kids that if they're too full or they've overdone it, will say no to it. Like, just put that ice cream cake in the freezer. I'll have it another time, which is pretty incredible. They're not obsessed. Do they like it? Yeah, of course they like it. You know, um, are they excited when they see it? Yeah. But again, they're not children who eat to sickness. And we had a great conversation actually last night in the affiliate program about, cause that's always a big fear. Like, but kids will just eat till they barf. They'll eat, you know, and there's all these professionals and all of them are like, I have never seen that. Cause I, I literally asked, like, I would love a statistic on this. Like how often do children eat sugar until they barf? And they were like, everyone was like, I've never seen it. They're like, I have seen children occasionally eat sugar until they have a bit of a stomach ache, but it tends to be a learning moment and it's part of that learning to manage themselves around food in the same way that we do with so many different things like ooh that didn't feel very good not i'm a bad person or i did something bad just that didn't feel very good in my body and it might take them a few times to figure that out but they will figure it out you know and when we see the opposite when we see children that continually go for things in a way that doesn't feel good and and doesn't seem to fit with an appropriate sort of like normal eating, it is always in my experience because the child is restricted on some level. 
And in the research, children can tell if they're being restricted, whether it's physical, like literally not letting them, or whether it's that emotional, like mm, little comments, feelings, like they perceive that. Isn't that huge? Like they know when you are stressing. Yes. Yes. So if we want children to be able to eat mostly healthy foods and then in a relaxed and moderate way, eat play food, um, like work food versus play food, then we need to do that. We need to offer up the opportunity for that. And we need to feel like that about food and they will model what we do. I love that. Cause yeah, I think I just hear so much about, yeah, the concern with sugar. So that, uh, that definitely helps in terms yeah. of, I feel like a lot of our listeners are going to resonate with that. And I uh, hope so. One more thing on that. I love that you talk about these as learning moments and opportunities. <clears throat> I think that that is such nice language to use around it as well and just so important. And can we also just quickly talk about how um, addiction to sugar is not a real thing? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would have to like, I feel like I have to write up a really good article on this, but essentially it's not a physiological addiction because we can take it away And there aren't a lot of negative physical consequences. And some people will be like, yeah, but I've taken it away and this happens and this happens and this happens. But what people tend to be doing in those moments is taking away like all form of carbohydrate. And so they're basically taking away every single thing that their body has ever relied on for energy and to feed their brain and forcing their body into a whole new energy fuel creating situation that is incredibly difficult on the body. If they were to just reduce the amount of sugar that were in their diet or cut out, let's say the white sugar in their diet, but keep the carbohydrate and the other forms of sugar. We don't see the same reaction. Again, it tends to happen that headaches and withdrawal and all of that when we're basically like eliminating all. And I know this because I'm a naturopath who used to do this with people, right? Like I used to put them on a sugar detox. We didn't just take out refined sugar. We took out honey and maple syrup and sweet potatoes and like and, and this is par for the course with sugar detoxes. This isn't just something I made up. And so <clears throat> when we are more moderate with our food choices, we are able to, you know, it, it, it just is not the same thing as heroin. It's not. And anyone who's equating sugar to heroin is just really not understanding the difference. Like again, sh- like all within context, sugar could keep you alive if you needed it to. It is something that can be used really functionally and beautifully and is the fuel of choice for our body, right? And, and we can't claim that it has this addictive property without completely ignoring the other aspects of eating, which involve nurture, which could be restriction on some level, and the fact that we're human beings that have the power of choice, right? And so it just doesn't add up. It's just not the same thing. And it, I feel like it's just a fear. And again, I would have to like write it all out to sort of like go through the research and pull it all apart and people have done it and it's beautiful, but it's just to me, a fear mongering oversimplification of our relationship with sugar, because if it were just this crazy addictive thing, there wouldn't be so many people who can manage themselves beautifully with sugar and people do. And Every single woman that I've had through my program believes she's a sugar addict and 
every single time she gets to the point where she can have a bag of Oreos in the house and eat one and just bleh, leave it. Because that's how powerful the psychology of deprivation is when it comes to food. And so um, even when we just have the stories, someone messaged me on Instagram just yesterday saying, you know, I don't restrict, but I'm so reactive with food and I don't understand why. But within the message, she also elaborated on all the shame and guilt she feels around eating. Like emotional restriction plays into that psychology of deprivation just as much as physical restriction. And so when we are telling the story over and over again in our head that sugar's poison and it's poisoning us and we're addicted to it and we can't manage ourselves around it, I mean, every time we eat it, we're setting ourselves up to have that experience. Yeah, such important things for us to hear. I know we need to wrap up soon, but I want to ask you about a couple more things. We've got tons of questions on Instagram from people about praising kids for eating, praising them for finishing their whole meal or praising them for eating healthy food. Can this be problematic? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm saying like, I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. We catch ourselves doing stuff like this all the time, but yeah, because kids want to please you, especially in those really young years, that's what they're attuned to do. And so they want to do what makes you happy. And it just distracts them from any kind of talk, really any kind of talk about, because there is, I can give some examples in a minute, but there are some things that I do with women, like full grown women, when it comes to intuitive eating that I would sometimes do with my kid. And through working with Ellen Satter and her faculty, what I've realized is that anytime we start to over-educate children, we disconnect them from their innate body feedback, even when we're encouraging them. So one of the things that I used to do would be like, are you full? Do you feel full? Like we take kids out of their body and we put them in their brain and we put them in this place where they're trying to figure out what the right answer is to please us. And so the goal is to talk as little about food at the table in the eating experience as possible and just let kids do their thing. Because the thing is, is when they're really full, they stop eating and they get bored and they want to get away from the table. And again, if that happens too early, they go away, they're not gonna to starve to death, you just don't let them eat until the next snack. And eventually they'll start to learn, hey, if I don't wanna starve for like the two hours before snack time, maybe I should probably eat while I'm at the table. But for the most part, kids will eat and they want to eat. And when they're full, they just stop. And if I'm totally honest about the moments when I was asking my daughter to check in, it tended to be the daughter that is rounder, right? Like I am clear on the fact that I have deep internalized fat phobia in myself as well. And so one of the ways that I check myself is like, would I say this or suggest this to my daughter who is incredibly thin? So when she pounds three hamburgers, I don't say anything. I don't think twice about it. I don't think twice about the judgment of others. I don't think twice about wh what she's doing. I trust that she's doing the right thing for her body. I can trust my other daughter who is in a body that holds more fat as well, right? And so it's about, again, checking myself and what the motivation is. Because that's another, I think, really important point is that sometimes we can say things like, if I'm genuinely loving the food I'm eating, I'll be like, oh my God, this is so good. Like the kids make fun of me all the time. So I'm like, this is delicious. This is delicious. I say something like ridiculous that embarrasses them, you know, um, and they make fun of it, but I'm not saying it because I'm trying to manipulate them into eating it. I literally just think it's delicious, right? So if we check our motivation, we can do a little bit of talking about food, but 
if there's any question about what your motivation is, if you are using your words to try to manipulate them into something, it's better just to not, you know, it's better just to not, because again, um, it just interrupts that natural feedback loop that they have going on. That's like really well-regulated. I love just less talking, less talking yeah. about food, less talking. Um, yeah. I just love the meat. I don't know about you guys. Like I, my kids are in public school right now, but we started in Waldorf education. And it's interesting to me to see these little like crossovers where it's like when kids are really young in the Waldorf education, you don't do a lot of like telling them about science or phenomenon or natural. You do a lot of like having them experiment and see for themselves because otherwise we override that curiosity to learn. It's like you take it away. It's like, it's like you told them what their Christmas present is before Christmas morning. So why, you know, you take away all the anticipation and the fun and the curiosity and the playfulness because you just told them, oh, like, and then you interrupt that learning to think process. And it's sort of the same with feeding. It's like the more we tell them is right and true and correct, the more we interrupt them figuring it out for themselves. And the fact of the matter is we scoff at the nutritional information that our parents shoved down our throats. And like, do we think that we're so much better that it's not going to be different 20 or 30 years from now? It is. So what we really want to do is teach kids how to be internally attuned so that they can take in information and decide what works for them and doesn't work for them because nutritional information is changing constantly. Yeah. So what you're saying is like, not really, not really educate them on the certain foods that they're eating, just kind of let them eat it and then they'll see kind of what their body does or how they feel after. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are other ways and opportunities. So, so one of the things that Ellen says in her books is like, just kids going grocery shopping with you and seeing the foods you pick, they learn that's an education, them seeing how you cook and what you put on the table. That's an education. Occasionally being in, like incorporated into that process is an education. Them looking at food, deciding not to eat it or putting it in their mouth and spitting it out 10 times. That's all part of the education. And so, yeah, for sure. Um, we will talk about food sometimes. I just try to do a little bit less of it at the table and know that they are learning through modeling and know that they are learning through modeling in all aspects. And then if they ask questions, we answer them really honestly. And when we're grocery shopping, sometimes we talk about, again, without any ulterior motive of like shoving some sort of dogma or philosophy down their, their throats, we do talk about like, oh yeah, these are vegetables, these are fruit. And I mean, kids also learn this at school they learn so sometimes they'll bring things home and we'll talk about the information whether it's correct or incorrect so we have these really interesting conversations about food and nutrition um but i'm just not doing it in a way where i'm trying to like manipulate them into behaving in a certain way or feeling like i've got to get all this information into them at, at an age where they're maybe potentially not quite ready for all the information and really just need to be learning through play and exploration even when it comes to food. I do have another question. Okay. I know I had a couple of friends ask me to ask you this as well, is about choice when it comes mm. to snacks or food. Because um, I know you talk, you've talked about kind of structure and not just being like free for all with everything. Like how, how do you recommend approaching that, let's say for snacks or even for dinner, like around choice? 
So I really adhere to the consideration without catering mantra. What that means is you know your kid and you know what foods are generally like safe foods for them. And safe food isn't a bad thing. Like again, some people think like that's a bad thing. It's a crutch food. But if you remember that kids are taking in so much information that there are children for whom new textures and new flavors are scary and weird and they need to get used to them. And depending on the type of, of personality your child has, they might be really late bloomers when it comes to accepting really new and different things. So the more you know your child, the more you can sort of figure out where this plays for you. Um, so asking them what they want to eat at every single meal tends to result in a little bit of chaos. So what we do as a family is we just have a mild kind of like, again, not rigid, but sort of a meal plan for the week. We absolutely consider what the children love to eat, but we also consider and incorporate foods that push their edges a little bit. So one night a week we'll have like, a big salad where like everything is all mixed together and some protein and some bread or some rice because the, the, the chicken and the bread or the rice is really safe for them. And then we can put that salad on their plate. And I know it's a stretch, but sometimes they eat it. Sometimes they don't, but sometimes they do. Sometimes they pick things apart. It's really incredible to see them kind of navigate that. But then we have other nights that are really safe, like taco night or, or, um, a pasta and veggie night or roasted they they do are in a roasted vegetable kick so we sort of moderate that where we're always being aware that we want food to be joyful and exciting for them but we're also pushing their edges a little bit because that's how they learn right so we're not forcing them to eat it but by putting food on the table that's a little bit outside of their comfort zone it pushes them to to just grow a little bit whether they eat it or not they're growing um but with choices, uh, I just don't give the kids a lot of choices if I'm honest anymore. Like again, that I fall back a little bit too on like the Kim John Payne uh, simplicity parenting. I don't know if you guys are familiar with his books and the soul of discipline, this idea that too many choices are exhausting for adults. Too many choices is like infinitely exhausting for children. And I, and I know that because my eldest is quite sensitive and I had to pare back on the infinite choices with her over and over and over again. I'm like, I've realized through his books, like he has like, you know, when they're really young, you're the governor and you should really be making the decisions and children sort of like fall within it. And then you're the gardener. And when they're in their sort of preteen years and they're incorporated more in the decision-making, but you're still ultimately in charge. And then there's the guide when they're in their later teens where you give more and more of the decisions over to them. And I realized that I'm naturally a guide. <laughs> like I want to be like, you do you. <laughs> We're just like cohabitating friends living in the same house. But I realized that it really is incredibly stressful, especially for a child like my older one. Um, it's exhausting. And so I just put the food on the table. And again, I'm in charge of the what. And so I vary it up and I'm always considering what they like. And I do certain things like there are certain things that I don't really buy for their lunches, for example, like fruit roll-ups or um, just certain things that I just don't buy for their lunches. I'm like, it's too much, too much packaging. It's too much this, like it just doesn't fit with my values. And so I can own that without projecting it onto them and being like, it's a bad choice. And kids at your school who are eating it or eating bad food. I just sort of say this, it's expensive. It's whatever. I don't really buy it. But if they're really interested in it, then maybe, you know, the last week of the term, I'll be like, Hey, you guys pick out whatever you want to have in your lunches this week. And I let them 
have that choice and that autonomy. So sometimes I incorporate them, but for the most part, like if it's after school snack, I just pull it together and I put it on the table. If they ask for something, sometimes I say yes. Sometimes I say, oh, we'll do that tomorrow. I already had this other thing planned, you know, like just really owning that I'm still in charge of the what of feeding. So I consider them. I love them. I care about them. I want them to be happy, but like, I'm not a short order cook. And, and I'm the one with all the nutritional information, right? Like if we're not giving all of it to them at too early of an age, then I'm the holder of that information. And so I'm going to do what's best for them most of the time. Yeah. I love that. Such good information. Last question I want to ask you because this theme came in a ton with the questions we got okay. on Instagram. People around us commenting about our children's eating habits or their bodies. Oh, it's so hard. What to do, how to manage it. Exactly. So, okay. It's really hard. I I feel like this is such an individual question. What I generally recommend is when we are in the process of renegotiating some of this stuff for ourselves, like when we're trying to do the work for ourselves, if you happen to be in that phase, I'm usually like, don't give too much attention to people outside of yourself because you're just not ready to do it. You know, it's like, you need to keep all your energy for what's right for you and stay really focused on you and what you're doing. Then as you become more solid and more secure and more confident in how you're feeding your children and that they're growing at the right rate and shape, then I usually start off with really subtle, (laughs) subtle things. Like that's not how we talk about food. That's not how we talk about bodies. We don't really believe that, you know? Um, And then for some people, especially if like family members or care providers have a lot of influence over the kids, Ellen Satter has amazing PDFs of like the division of responsibility and feeding with love and good sense. Like she just has some really great booklets and handouts that I will recommend that people print off and actually give to their parents or to their in-laws so that they can see like, I know you did things a certain way and that's great, but we're doing things this way. And this is really important to us. And especially um, if there is a struggle in some way, I feel like people will get on board if they understand. But again, weight is a funny thing, especially with those older generations. Like they are still hard and fast in like, we got to diet these kids, but they're just not really understanding that the research around weight and children is bad. It's not good. Right. And, and interfering in a certain way has really detrimental outcomes. So I think we have to educate. And again, I think those handouts are a great way to be a little bit more like, like, this is it, this is what we're doing. I love that. And then as they get older, again, we just talk to our kids about it later too sometimes you know like not when they're really little but now that they're at 10 and 8 we'll be like did you hear what that person said like what did you think about that how did you feel about that and it's always so interesting to hear their side of it and what they took from it or what they learned and then I'll just sort of say I'm so glad that we don't feel that way about food isn't it nice to be so relaxed and just be able to enjoy food and not stress about it and I just sort of leave it at that so now that they're older we do talk about it because they, they're hearing it. They're hearing it every single time a family member eats anything besides a vegetable and is like, oh, I'm so bad. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. You know, so I'll just say, did you hear that? What did you think of that? 
<laughs> and, and then just address whatever comes up for them as honestly as I can. Okay, Jillian, that was absolutely incredible information. Can you give us some more info about where people can find out how to work with you and where they might find more information from you? Sure. My website is www.foodfreedombodylove.com. And on that website, you'll find out ways to work with me. There is an article section of writing that I've done. There's ways to sign up for my newsletter. I try to give a lot to the people who are interested in this work. I also have, if you just search like Google foodfreedombodylove.com podcast, I have a five-part series that's free on on raising competent eaters. It's basically called, um, I think I called it body image, weight, intuitive eating, something for kids. Like it's just all about all of the things that we were talking about today in a slightly more methodical pattern, like five hours of info. So that's also a great place to start if they're not into reading all the books. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I do consults here in Kingston in person, but I also do them on Skype. So I am very open to working with people all over. Amazing. Thank you again. That was fantastic. Thanks for having me. On the next episode of To Birth and Beyond, Anita and I are giving you the inside scoop on what our postpartum experiences with baby number two have been. We talk about everything from our physical, mental, emotional recoveries, how our marriages have handled the shift, and what the struggles and joys have been with baby and toddler. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 